to welcome everybody to, if you're watching this live, it's our last live session of 2022. Um, this is Launch AMA, and I am your host today, Sam Chan. Today, I am joined by Vic Campbell. Welcome, Vic. Thanks, Sam. Really happy to be here with you. Vic, your resume is so long, so I'm going to make you just kind of ex kind of share with yourself. <laughs> Would you just kind of like to introduce yourself a little bit, how you got into startups, technology, all that sort of stuff? Yeah, for sure. Um, graduated from the University of Waterloo. Um, and a uh, long story, like kind of a funny story, which we'll get into later, about how I ended up at Microsoft as the first um, bit of my career. Um, spent six years there in a variety of product marketing um, and marketing communications roles. Decided to make the move to Vancouver, um, went agency side, um, kind of wanted to round up my experience as well as um, Blast Radius was one of the prominent agencies and technology companies uh, in Vancouver at the time. So spent about three years there and then decided to go startup size uh, side as uh, SaaS was really taking off, um, did two startups, um, one in the enterprise um, billing space and the other in the retail mobile technology space, um, both which were fortunate to have uh, successful exits to Oracle and to Salesforce, respectively. Um, and then I spent the better part for four years at Facebook, um, really helping them build out their commercial business team and kind of community infrastructure um, here in Western Canada, which is actually how I, you know, uh, got to know Ray and the rest of the, the rest of the great team at uh, launch. Um, and then I decided to go client side again um, and really ramp up on my uh, operating experience um, and actually take a job where for the first time I was a shipping molecules to people so like physical things as opposed to bits and bytes over a screen um, so that was a really great experience um, learned a lot from that and then also it was the first time I'd worked for a company that was not headquartered on the west coast of Canada or the US um, so I got a lot of great experience um, looking to understand how different management styles um, can drive productivity, incentivize people and whatnot. And now I'm here kind of in the midst of a bit of a career break, doing some advisory, doing a little bit of venture, uh, a little bit of angel investing, uh, some mentorship. And yeah, I think that's everything in about two minutes. That's, that's impressive. For, for a guy on a break, you sure are busy. Um, some, some pulling behind the curtains thing. Me and Vic have been trying to plan this thing for, for like four or five months, probably in the background. But but he's he's staying busy for sure. Um, I was gonna actually gonna say Blast Radius when I was in school. I know people today don't know what Blast Radius is, but like Blast Radius was like my dream company to work for when I was in school. Like they did some really cool work. Yeah, it was it was an amazing time in the internet's history, and Blast was you know very close to the center of it in terms of designing experiences for you name it from a from a consumer brand standpoint. Um, it was a very, very cool time. And I also think it's just really cool to see what like the people who were there and kind of had that education um, at Blast, um, what they yeah. went on to do, you know, second or third order careers uh, outside of uh, leaving, leaving Blast. Yeah. Yeah. For those of you that are listening that, that never heard of this, like if you have probably seen Blast's work, I'm, I'm, arguing like whether it's like nike disney bmw they did a lot of the campaigns for them a lot of those not just not just ads but it, i felt like they made it, built a lot of experiences yeah yeah the um, starbucks loyalty program was built by blast radius right it's one of those it's one of those go. things where it's like just it's seated everywhere there you go awesome so i i mean obviously we've we you've been on both sides you've been on the agency side on the product side on the retail side 
one of obviously one of the main connections between all the roles you played at, whether it's big tech, Facebook, Microsoft, whatever, um, it seems to have you've been drawn to the marketing industry, right? So what exactly is it about marketing um, that has kind of drawn you back time and time again? Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things. The first is um, where marketing sits within or within an organization's value chain is in between product and sales. And a lot of the role that pro-marketing and especially product marketing does um, or needs to do is really understand with what product is delivering, how do we cast the value proposition in the light that's going to make whomever the intended customer is understand what the desired value is and then become intrigued in the transaction and then follow through with that from a sales motion standpoint. So I like where it sits within the organization, um, you know, between product and sales, um, because I think there is a lot of really interesting things that can happen there, uh, both quantitatively and qualitatively. And I also really enjoy like just the variety of, I like, I enjoy the human psychology um, behind, behind marketing as well, in terms of why is it that we decide to make the purchase decisions or live the lifestyles that we actually decide, you know, we actually do. How much of it comes from nomadic theory and our desire to be like other people and how, you know, as a marketer, can you tap into that? How much of it yep. comes from like, you know, basic, the basics of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how can you appeal, you know, to specific things that way. And then all of the variables that you have, the, you know, you can do that with terms of position placement, um, the channels that you actually run in the message that you land, like there's, there's a lot of room there for, you know, creativity, but as well as a lot of room there for really understanding uh, a customer psychology and bringing that into what's going to make your product or service successful. Yeah, let's let's definitely dive deeper into that. But before I do that, just a quick reminder for everybody that's listening live. Um, if you do have any questions, feel free to just pump them in the, the Q&A and we'll try and get to as many as we can. Um, as you guys can tell, we're probably going to end up talking a lot more about marketing. I know our marketing team will appreciate this as well. Um, but uh, yeah, feel free to ask Vic whatever you want. He also does advise for, for different startups and we'll get into that a little bit. Um, so so don't feel don't feel obligated if you have a different question, whether it's, it's, you know, your time at Facebook or Microsoft, or, you know, trying to work with these big companies, feel free to kind of ask those questions as well. Now, kind of back to, back to what we were just talking about, you know, obviously we're sitting in a room full of founders. Some are going to be marketers. Some of them are going to be product builders. Some are sales, some are designers, some are purely technical, maybe backend devs, who knows. Right. Um, and, and a common thing that I see a lot in, in, especially the, the very early round pitches is they'll be like, look at all our traction. We have done this with $0 in marketing, right? Um, we've done X traction, but we've done, we haven't spent a dollar on marketing. Now, now, you know, obviously you've been on both sides. How, what, what does that actually say to you from, maybe you're looking from an investor point of view, what does that say to you about that company? And, and to me, I kind of see how it can, you know, be a positive, like, oh, wow, look how much more you can imagine, but also like, why haven't you spent any money or effort on marketing, right? So what are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, so I'll, I'll look at it from an investor point of view. Um, you know, the way I read that is that you are getting initial traction towards some semblance of product market fit. And then my question then go to, okay, what is the value you are delivering? Because while you may not be spending money on marketing, you know, there is something that's happening in your customers, users' brains, where they are extracting value out of your service. How well do you understand what that value is? How well do you understand, A, like how that how that value can be deepened? And you hear the word engagement all the time. And that's really what you know I mean by that. It's like, how, how well can you 
deepen that value that you're delivering to the customer. So engagement. Um, and then more so it's like how many other customers are out there like those customers and how are you then going to go out and find them? Are you going to find them through, you know, um, creating network effects within your product that are going to allow for um, new customers come in to, you know, to come in through, you know, the word through word of mouth or through um, just incredible product features that allow you to you know, pull people into the set. Are you going to go and need to spend money in order to go and get that happen? Or when do you actually think you're going to be able to, when do you think you're going to need to spend money um, when you're going to tap out on the organic growth that you're going to see? So that's where my questions really go to is like, what is the value that you've created? How well do you understand that value? How much more, how many more customers there are with, you know, let's just call it this point solution um, of value that you're delivering that you believe that you can acquire. And then the next cohort of customers that you that you need to get, how do you get them? Is there new things that you need to release from a product standpoint? Or do you need to then go find spend money on marketing to get more of the same kind of customers that you already have, but may not necessarily come to you organically? So that's how I kind of peel apart that, uh, that problem as an investor. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, presuming this kind of this make believe company I've made up, um, they've they've gone and raised around. They've done the 500 k, a million, whatever it is, and now they're ready to you know quote spend money on marketing. How do they start when I guess most of their growth, as you kind of put it, it has been organic? It's not. I wouldn't say it just arrived at the doorstep, but you know, there's been initial initial attraction, right? But now they're like, oh, we need to spend money, and I feel like a lot of companies these days are, I don't want to say wasting money, but they're not using that kind of period of time valuably. Yeah. Um, assuming that that seed money comes in with like some sort of earmark to go towards marketing itself, I then kind of bring that all back to like the value proposition or the potential value proposition itself. Like, what are they? How well do you understand the real reasons that people are using your product? Does it make them more money? Does it save them time and save them cost? Or is it enhancing some sort of customer? You know, is it enhancing some sort of experience for them that then allows for LTV growth, right? And then of those three true business outcomes, because frankly, those are the only three business outcomes that exist. You know, what are the things that your product or service are doing underneath those three outcomes that's actually delivering value? If you don't know, that's all well and good. Let's build some hypotheses and now spend the money to test those hypotheses around messaging and creative and then get the signal back from the platforms. Because that's the beauty of these platforms is you can get a really rapid signal back on which one of these value propositions are my people, are my potential customers responding to the most? How do I iterate off of that? And that's where you make your scaling decision based off of where that signal is coming from in terms of the, the stickiest or the most resonant value proposition that you got out there. Mm-hmm. And and I know, especially, I, I feel like there's a question here from, from my comments. Um, um, you know, within a team, there might be salespeople, there might be marketers, and then there's product people, right? When a campaign doesn't land, let's say it doesn't stick, like, you know, one team, it will blame the other team, the other team will blame the third team. How does that kind of, how do you look at a situation like that and, and attribute like where, where's the leaky faucet? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of part of my life. I'm probably going to swear a bit here, but like my thing is like, I don't give a fuck. About, I don't give a fuck about the blame. It's like, why, why did it not work? Like, let's figure out like mm-hmm. where the miss was. Did it, did it not work because we don't understand the value in the right way? Did it not work because we just invested in, I'm going to pick on Facebook. We picked on, we invested on Facebook in the wrong way because we were buying clicks as opposed to conversions. Did it not work because our website shut the bed? And did it necessarily convert those leads into, you know, um, into, let's say, uh, SQLs um, 
convert those MQ or those that traffic into MQLs, I should say, um, or did our salespeople, is our sales process like broken or where is that broken? Is that the fact that the value proposition is not being communicated and articulated properly? So I, I really want to understand like that operational change and what's like where, where it's not working or breaking, like where is it broken as opposed to the pointing of fingers because it's a waste of energy, especially at this early stage. And like, let's go into solution, let's go into solution mode and figure out how to fix it. Yeah, yeah. And I think a tie into that is, is I think you're leading to this kind of big, big question mark I had about, but attribution, right? Like trying to understand which parts convert well, which parts, you know, need improvement, where, where's the problem and seeking that out. Um, I, I feel like from, from my vantage point, even like there's a lot of confusion about attribution because I think it's like arguably like, well, there's, there could be five, six touch points before something leads to, to a sale. Um, there's a lot of debates about what converted the lead, right? Um, how do you kind of tackle it from your point of view? Maybe you can you speak in your experience on what you guys did at Facebook, um, but also maybe like clearly because I feel like there's tons of campaigns that you did there. Yeah, and you know I think the the answer there really depends on like what stage of a what stage of their maturity cycle a company is in. Um, so one of the things that we spoke about to fast growing companies um, at Facebook was, is like last click attribution is, you know, I say akin to booking a place, a flight from Vancouver to Paris and giving the entire credit for the flight to the Uber ride that takes you from Charles de Gaulle to your hotel. Right. And so if that's where you want to place the weight of your money is investing on that Uber ride, then, hey, that's a story. You know, that's, you know, one strategy that you can deploy. Don't get me wrong. It's important, but that's one strategy that you can deploy. Um, a lot of what I'm really interested in, there's this amazing book out there, and I recommend this for everyone, not just for marketers. It's called Why Brands Grow by Byron Sharp. And it takes all of the bullshit out of marketing, and it really looks at there's two jobs that your marketing needs to do. Your marketing needs to create mental availability. So it's about how do you acquire one or two neurons in someone's brain so that when they're cued to a need, you're number one or number two in the consideration set. Because if you do that, you're going to take 70 to 80% of the total market share that's available. So mental availability is the first one. And the other is physical availability. When people want your stuff, how do you make sure that you actually have it on your on your shelves or you know in, in stock itself? So you're really talking about two things from a marketing standpoint. You're talking about demand creation, which is that how do you acquire one or two neurons and demand capture, which is really about how do you then convert that demand, you know, into a transaction of, of some kind. So at Facebook, we really talked a lot about the way you should really look things, the way you should really look at your channels, especially at an early stage is actually what is the incremental sales that investment in the channel, incremental investment in the channel is actually bringing to you as an organization. And the only way you can really do that is by setting up, and this is, for anyone who's ever worked in retail, this is a bit of a throwback to like state, same store uh, sales tests and whatnot, um, is setting up um, um, lift studies within the channels themselves. So lift studies for Facebook and Instagram, lift studies for Google, lift studies for, you know, whatever the channels you may be in Pinterest, et cetera, et cetera. And based off of the incremental return you're seeing from Facebook versus Google, you get a better understanding of where it is you can deploy your dollars. I'll give you an example that we used at Clearly because this was really one of the big things that we did at Clearly during my tenure there is at Clearly, we had about a $30 million USD budget from a marketing standpoint to deploy towards customer acquisition and retention. Um, 
one of the things that we did about 20 million of that was going towards Google, um, both in terms of paid as well as non-paid AdWords. And then the rest was being sprinkled across everything else. Um, we took, we first looked at Facebook because they've got, you know, organic tools that are built into ads manager that you can run your lift studies in. We ran a lift study for a month and we realized like, Hey, the dollars that we're investing in Facebook, everything else held common is returning a buck 50 back. And then we looked at Google at that $20 million price point that we had and we said, hey, brand search, non-brand search, the dollars that we're investing there, oh, lo and behold, they're only returning 75 cents back. And that then gave us, you know, a really deep insight in terms of our ability to calibrate our marketing. So, you know, Facebook and Instagram are really, again, demand creation channels. They're about acquiring neurons in someone's brain, which then the Google tools really help sop up and grab and convert that to purchases. So that then gave us an opportunity to really shift our budget from um, the demand create the demand capture platform being, you know, Google into our demand creation platform and running these on a continuous basis basis across all your platforms, you get a very good understanding of where your next incremental dollar should go, where you're overspent. You can then layer in what your seasonal trends actually look like um, with that as well. So obviously Black Friday, Cyber Monday is a big seasonal trend. Like how do we make sure that we've got enough neurons that we're capturing in the time leading up to that? Um, I could go on for this forever, but I'll pause there to see if there's any, you know, any follow-ups uh, and whatnot uh, on that part. Hey, listener. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Launch AMA so far. If you would like to attend these chats live, ask questions directly to the presenters, and be part of the show, you can sign up for our program, Launchpad. You can learn more about Launchpad and what we do at Launch Academy by going to launchacademy.ca slash launchpad. All right, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, that's, that's actually really fascinating. Like What I was kind of trying to think about and relate to is is what would be like, I don't want to say startup, but like something with a smaller budget or smaller campaign, like how can yeah. they kind of learn from that experience? Um, yeah, that, that, that's the first part of my question is just like, you know, if I don't, I don't want to say if you're starting out, but let's say if, if you have a $10,000 budget or you have a $20,000 budget, um, how can you kind of make the most out of, I want to say learning, because I feel like it, especially when you're just kind of rolling out, a lot of it is just trying to understanding what resonates with, with the demographics that you're going after, right? Yeah. Um, where if I had a $10,000 budget in the startup, and let's say it was an e-commerce startup of some kind, where I would invest the vast majority of that money is non-branded search on Google, likely on a performance max, max buy. Um, because on a non-branded standpoint, you've got like some semblance of intent that is going into that search engine. So they're pretty close, they're pretty damn close to the lower lower part of the funnel. What you want to understand is like, what is the shape that, what is the shape that that intent is taking in terms of the types of keywords and whatnot that people are typing in that are adjacent to what your offering is. So for example, one of the companies I'm working with, they make, they've created this product, which is an athletic grade knee brace that's built into a pair of tights. Uh, it's a one of a kind product, really interesting technology. Uh, and they're just starting to ramp up their ad spend. And so one of the things that we're having the team there look at is like, what are the, you know, the terms around knee braces, um, around athletic support, um, that, you know, people are actually typing in, how do you then understand that mix of keywords? And then what is the keyword strategy that you want to develop for this company to kind of put in there? And then you monitor how well are we capturing and driving traffic to our page and how long does it take for that traffic to then convert from that non-branded keyword into a actual uh, conversion? Is it a week? Is it, you know, just 24 hours? Um, and we can let then leverage that insight to really understand like how much more should we be investing because now we've got a ROAS number, return on ad spend number for the first time. 
that we can continue investing into. So that's what would really be my take on it is like there is a mid to bottom funnel intent signal for everything that's out there because we've got, we live in the world of Google. Let's understand what that is and let's understand how we then shape our value proposition into that. Yeah. And, and I really like that Nebris example, like, because I think it's not, um, I'm looking around the room right now and, and I see a lot of, of technology companies that, that are doing something that where they don't not only have to sell their own brand, but I feel like they also have to market the space itself, right? Like I'm looking here around the room, I see some NFT projects, for example. So I know right now NFT has, has a bad name on it, but if they're trying to create an experience or they're trying to create a gaming world or, or something like that, they can't just sell their brand. They have to kind of push the space forward, right? I see another one in in, in uh, food food waste, right? Like it's not a problem that automatically comes to mind immediately, right? Um, so so how how would you kind of recommend balancing you know pushing your own brand versus the the space itself yeah um i i think the reason most startups die is because they overeat more so than anything else uh, is they try to do too much too quickly and that takes away from focus and leads to a very slow and painful death um i've seen it happen time and time again and so getting back to your with that kind of context getting back to your question um I I don't believe that any one company is going to create a category by itself. Um, there's, again, I'm going to give another book recommendation here. It's probably about 30 years old, but it's still super relevant. It's Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Not every, your, not every customer needs to be your customer on day one or hell, even year one or year two or year three. What you are looking for when you're this early is who are the zealots, who are the fanatics that fundamentally believe in what you're doing because they are mission aligned. They're ideologically aligned. And how do you get as many of them believing in your solution over a competitor solution more so than anyone else? Because what that first one to 3% of the addressable market will do is they will evangelize for you and they will bring that next, you know, five to, you know, uh, that next uh, three to 10%, you know, into whatever it is that you're doing for you to even learn more because the needs of those people are actually going to be different than the needs of the, you know, than the needs of the zealots, which again, you take in as signals in terms of like how to actually iterate off of your ordering and offering and so on and so on. You know, the tangible example here is like, you look at the iPhone drop in 2006, let's say, I think 2006, maybe 2007, yeah, you know, that first, it, that first iteration of the iPhone wasn't for everyone, right? It was for a select, it was, for, it was for a segment of the uh, population that believed in what Apple was doing. And lo and behold, like they iterated and they continued to grow their market share over time. You know, who would have known that in, you know, well, maybe some people did, but you know, in 2016 to now, which is what, uh, sorry, 2006 till now, which is, let's call it 15, 16 years, that they would be you know, one of two, you know, global handset makers that had the vast majority of the total dollars available in the addressable market. And so it's don't try to be everything to everyone right away. Like you're really looking to acquire, especially at early stages, you're, you're acquiring the zealots and really focus on like, what is it that those zealots want? And then how do you then expand out from those zealots into the next cohort of customers that you're looking to acquire? So um, the, 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 Crossing the chasm really talks about this. And I find like often just helps, you know, as I'm advising or even as I'm, you know, working within organizations in an operating capacity, really helps to drive that kind of focus of like, who are we trying to acquire right now? And are we looking way too far upstream into a, into a future that 
you know, their time, the time hasn't arrived for that yet. Yep. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. And, and again, because so many of your companies are listening in on internationally, um, a lot of them are looking at North America as, as a new market. How would you recommend for them? Because, you know, they may, they might have a specific Google ad spend strategy or, or, or whatever, whatever version, whatever platforms it is they're doing that, that have worked, right. Worked in their, their, their other countries, but now they're looking at North America and it could be the same. It could be different. Um, what kind of recommendations would you have for them? Do they treat it as like a, oh, we haven't captured um, this this demographic at all. So we've got to treat it as like a net new product for a net, as a net new company or are there kind of things that can cross over? If the value you're delivering translates well between geographies, you can cross over, you know, I don't want to say an easy way because it's not easy, but you can cross, cross over in a, in a simpler way. Um, because then it's really about understanding how do we translate this value that we seem to be getting, getting traction on in our non-North American markets? How, we tr- how do we translate that culturally for North American audiences? So it's much, it's much simpler, um, you know, assuming that the value that you're assigning is the same. If you're looking to make a product pivot or a product shift um, and enter the market, that's significantly harder because, you know, you're more so staring into the abyss a little bit there because you really don't have a good, you don't really have any signals on whether or not the product's going to be successful in a market. So I'd almost suggest in that case, like try that pivot or shift in your local market, get an understanding of like what that value, you know, what that value proposition of that value capture actually looks mm-hmm. like. And then um, look at expansion into North American markets. Yeah. Yeah. And then from, from, you know, from your time from blast to, to your time at clearly, uh, obviously a lot of time has passed in between, like, I feel like the world got smaller, like has globalization marketing strategy kind of, changed because i maybe before you could hyper localize and now now you know you could put up a billboard in in qatar for the world cup but then in seconds it's in reddit and all over the world the competitive playing field has been significantly leveled uh in that time when i think from how 2010 to you know uh to now um and a lot of that has been driven and this is the upside of it a lot of that has been driven by the technology platforms where they can allow a small business you know to advertise and compete in the same auction as a unilever or as a microsoft or whatever it is previously that was like undreamable yeah you could buy adwords and fair enough but even before 2010 2003 that wasn't possible or 2000 that wasn't possible right so you have to think about like Prior to these platforms coming forward, you know, you would have to compete with the Unilevers, the Microsofts, so you name it. Um, sorry, guys, the dog's just had his way here. Um, you would have to compete with like the Unilevers, the Microsofts for ad space on television and magazines and whatnot, where there really wasn't any sort of egalitarian approach to how that stuff was going to be priced. Um, so from that standpoint, in terms of, the comp- in terms of competing for... Um, people's attention through these mediums, it's significantly smaller and it's significantly more egalitarian. Now, mind you, that comes with other trade-offs like everything else does. Um, but, you know, to, to specifically to this question, I completely agree with you, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to switch gears just, just a little bit because I want, don't want to forget about my bootstrappers. Um, there are companies out there that, that, you know, they've, they've done organic growth. They've done very well for themselves. Um, and now they're trying to kind of figure out, well, this Google ad spend campaign sounds like a lot of money. We're already doing okay. Like what kind of, what kind of like indicators would be kind of like pushing you to be like, Hey, 
it's time to spend some money on marketing and and then we'll we'll talk a little bit about about platforms in just a sec but yeah if you see your organic it's, it's pretty simple like if you start seeing your organic growth slow down it's either happening because you've got a problem in your product or not enough people are talking about your product organically and so then the question becomes are we just not incentivizing that in the right way so what's a crm strategy what's an in product strategy that we can go and run that way um or at that point do we need to go invest money to just get the vol get make the volume louder on what it is that we're doing and the value that we're delivering to our to our customers yeah and and and, and a sort of side question there I, I noticed you, you know you talked about a lot of your early adopters kind of being your referral being your your amplifier your echo chamber is it worth investing in maybe like a referral program or affiliate program depending on what your product is early as opposed to some of these campaigns that we're, we're talking about um potentially yeah depending on like what space that you're playing in um and who those customers actually are um you know i this again this is what i'm about to say next is not an original thought because i'm not that smart but there was something i you know I, the most one of the most interesting predictions that I've heard of what's going to happen over the course of the next five to 15 years is that the majority of consumer brands, so think of you know everything in the Unilever, um, you know, P&G umbrellas uh, and whatnot, the majority of those consumer brands over the course of the next 10 to 15 years are actually going to die or they're going to need to evolve. And what's going to happen is, and you're already starting to see it happen, is you've got all these influencers that are out there that have built these platforms for themselves, which are now reaching some sort of scale. You look at Rogan, you look at Mr. Beast, you look at the Kardashians and whatnot. What, they're, what those platforms they've built, as well as the followings that they've built have now provided is this audience of millions, and in some cases, billions of people that they can reach and recommend products and services into. And now what you're starting to see is that these people have realized, some of these people have realized this, and they're starting to release products into those, into their audiences. So the Mr. Beast Burger piece, Kim Kardashian just joined, not just, but a few months ago, joined a, beast, a private equity firm as a general partner, right? And so you're starting to see this happening. So that's where this gets really interesting is like, okay, getting back to the question is like, if you start seeing like, hey, where do we actually play within this ecosystem? or within you know within this consumer market who are our customers who are they listening to or looking at you know for influence specifically around anything that we're doing how can we then potentially build a relationship with the individuals who are influencing who are you know have a voice in that community and then incentivize um you know some sort of amplification through them again easier said than done but you know i i really do believe that more so over the next 10 to 15 years like you're going to see these you know these these personal brands going downstream and releasing products right and these product companies like coca-cola or whatnot that have always relied on content are not going to be able to compete because frankly commercials suck right red bull is like one of the only companies that's actually producing content on a consistent basis that's incredible right and those brands are really going to struggle going upstream so you look at even the DraftKings acquisition of um, barstool sports like that's exactly what mm -hmm. that is it's like portnoy's got an audience um and barstool and um DraftKings is very very interested in like tapping into portnoy's audience because he can continue to drive volume you know, into their product or service. So that was a little bit more of, you know, tangential, but I do think like that's a significant macro shift that's going to happen in the world over the course of the next 10, 50, 10 to 15 years, especially as the young people today gain further economic power 
and their behaviors then compound out over the course of the next 10 to 15 years based off of, hey, the inheritance that they're going to get when their parents pass away, but also just the, you know, the, the sheer life cycle of who they are as a consumer in a global economy. That's, that's actually really fascinating because really what you're talking about is this convergence of, of product companies really needing to either acquire or become more content-like companies. And then at the same time, these content platforms and these content companies going, hey, why not us? Why can't we build a product? Why can't we have yeah. a manufacturer? Right. Um, and so, so how do you see that kind of relating? And, and I've definitely felt it here because frankly, like, again, trying to pull behind the curtain, we're on this kind of call, we're on this podcast. Like Launch Academy did not start out as a media company. We sure as heck do a lot of media and content now, right? Um, so, so from from a a startup point of view, like, is it important early to start kind of releasing content? And now we're kind of crossing the that chasm of like when to create content versus marketing spend, right? But but is it really important now for for anybody who who let's say they're building a SaaS solution or or they're let's say they're building a game? Does that content creation need to kind of walk alongside the the product growth? More and more, it will need to. And again, this is just my, my POV. But the way the way that I'm seeing it is like it is getting very very difficult to find a competitive edge in the platforms now. So a lot of that competitive edge is it, it's still out there. Don't get me wrong, but at scale, like it's hard to invest ten million dollars on Google, Facebook or whoever it is differently than your competitor who's also investing $10 million. And so that edge is competed away. And so more and more, it's like, all right, where is your edge going to come from? And to your point, it's like, how well do we understand like what it is that our product is delivering to our customers that they're finding valuable? Is it intrinsic value? Is it utilitarian value? And then how do we actually then create content that actually demonstrates how that value is being delivered to these customers, as well as what it can potentially do for you? Um, so that's when you get into, is it lifestyle-based content that we're producing? Is it, um, is it more um, how-to you know, content that we're producing. Um, so I do, I do believe that's going to become increasingly important where like your contact strategy will need to go, you know, hand in hand and not, if not right beside your product roadmap and your acquisition plans, frankly, because that's going to be how acquisition is done in the next five to 10 years. For sure. Um, and now I have a question, another question here, thoughts on community plan building. When is the right time for an early stage startup to start building a community around the product and perhaps what are some good tips or strategies to do so in the early days? Yeah, I'd say um, immediately is the right time, especially for a startup. Because again, you're looking at this is the time to acquire the zealots, uh, or this is the time, you know, you're looking at the, the first one to 3% of people who are coming in. But I also don't believe that you need to do anything from a you know, from an official standpoint, like investing community building platforms or whatever it is, like your community can be simply like you as the founder talking to your customers, you know, at least once a day or at least a few times a week um, to really, you know, making, you know, really getting an understanding of what it is that they um, care about, why it is that they're actually still with you, why they've chosen you versus, you know, other other options that are out there. Um, and given the fact that, again, this is the first one to 3% of the audience, they're going to want to tell you everything that they have or everything that they believe in your space specifically, especially at these early stages. Mm -hmm. and, and, I'll, and I'll, and I'll let Siad kind of rebuttal if I'm going in the wrong direction. I, I think what he's maybe referring to is, yeah. is not just like the company to the consumer, but also what about between consumers themselves? 
That's not something that you need to build the infrastructure for at this stage, because it's already happening. It's happening on Discord, it's happening on Reddit, like you name it, like you just more need to like a plug into where that that is happening um, and either participate or just listen really well. Perfect, yeah. So yeah, if you wanna, if you wanna reiterate on that, feel free. I'm just kind of trying to read between the tea leaves there. Um, but, but speaking of of Discord and 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 all that kind of stuff, I think one of the biggest debates I see companies having have all the time, probably probably a lot of spent hours and and maybe they're not that practical, is just talking about which platforms to be present on. Yeah. Um, I I know you you've definitely been on a couple of whether it's panels or or meetings where people are like, should I should I be on on Facebook? Should I be on TikTok? All that kind of stuff. So so to kind of ingest to start off this kind of conversation, settle it first once for all. I know we've had these <laughs> conversations. Should launch be on TikTok? And 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 I really want to use us as kind of like the the guinea pig for okay. example for other okay. people to kind of think it through. Do you believe so do you believe that entrepreneurs are on TikTok? Absolutely. I think three of them are on right now. Do you believe that their entrepreneurs that are on TikTok are different than the entrepreneurs that are on the other channels that you're inevitably marketing on? I think this is very much generalizing without research. I think there might be more, more of a younger audience. Okay. Um, I do think they have like a lower attention span and maybe that's the capture market. So there is a incremental entrepreneur there are incremental entrepreneurs on TikTok that are different than um, who you're currently marketing towards. And generationally, they're younger and inevitably some of them are going to be exceptionally successful um, just as you know, life plays itself out. Um, so from a should you be their standpoint, the, the answer to that sounds like it's a yes. The next question is, what are the competencies and the capabilities that you need to build to make sure that you can have a non-embarrassing conversation or to produce non-embarrassing content for that platform. Because a lot of that is where I think, you know, things really do fall down um, is you get guys like me producing TikTok videos. And it's just like, Jesus Christ, this is like, you know, the Steve Buscemi meme where he's like holding the skateboard. He's like, hello, young people or hello, fellow young people. Um, and so the question then becomes, okay, you should be on there, but then who should be responsible for the content creation strategy at launch? It shouldn't be Ray. You know, it, it should be someone within your community that understands how to deliver on that and you leverage that understanding of the audience, the medium. And I know, you know, we can talk about Marshall McLuhan in a second as well, the audience, the medium to figure out how you deliver that message in deliver the launch message or value proposition in that medium in a way that's going to be most native to what it is that they want to intake. My communication professors would be so proud. We, we, we slipped in Marshall McLuhan into a, into a podcast, but, <laughs> but to your point, I think we were just going to go with Ray doing meme dances. Um, <laughs> like, Hey, there's that, an audience for that as well. Right. <laughs> that so, so like, I, I think that's really fascinating. And, and, and thank you for that kind of playing along with me for that exercise, because, because I think it's really important to, to kind of see in real time, like what are the, what are the, what are the motivations behind those kind of decision-making, right? Like, yeah. like I, and I think a, a great question that kind of came up as you were talking is about timing. It's like, should we be on TikTok? Yes. 
what is the current allocation of of time that that we are spending on on communicating what our values are to to our audience? Do we have time to capture a new audience? Is now the right time, right? Um, and I think that's that's also like a really honest question that founders that are listening right now need to kind of be true to themselves, right? Like if you're a team of three and you're hustling and trying to get orders out, is now the best time to try and capture a a new demographic, right? Presuming that it's not already original one. Um, and so, is that so, the most important experiment you need to be running as a founder? Um, yeah. If if you know if you've topped out on the rest of your acquisition channels, or if that demographic is the demographic you need to go after, that's a different story. Um, but if you're you know struggling to find product market fit and you're investing money into amplifying your message um, when you don't even know what your value is yet, then is your time being actually spent on your most important problem? Fair enough. And and I know like talking about the companies you advise like. First of all, like, I guess let's open that door a little bit because we haven't really mentioned it at all. Um, what what kind of what kind of advisory work do you do? What kind of companies are you interested in? And and generally, what is that relationship like? Yeah, it it really starts with um, the the founder and the company itself. So there there's a few things that I look for um, just based off of like my own level of interest. Um, the first is is like is this company addressing something that I believe is going to be a macro trend over the course of the next five to 15 years. And so that's the horizon that I'm looking at. The second thing that I look for is, is this founder, you know, someone who is part of the ideal customer profile or looks to be part of the ideal customer profile for the problem it is that they're solving? Because therefore, a lot of the research in terms of how you design the solution can come from the early research, I should say, can come from the founder's insight and conviction. The third is, is how much does this problem bother the founder? Um, and like legitimately bother the founder in terms of like, Hey, I can't believe that this is exists out there in the world, whether it's, you know, from an injustice standpoint or whatnot. So one example I'll give is, um, I'm working with a founder right now and she's an international student who immigrated to Canada and was blown away at how difficult it was for her to get a job, um, a, as an international student for visa reasons, but also upon graduation. And so what she is building is she's building a, let's call it a marketplace for international students that can, you know, go and find jobs at well-known companies such as the Royal, such as Royal RBC, um, um, Deloitte, et cetera, et cetera, and do that. So the solution itself, I think is interesting, but then I put the macro hat on. It's like, Hey, in Canada alone, we are staring down the, you know, staring down the barrel of a population crisis. You know, we are below replacement rep levels of birth rates. Yeah. Our aging boomer population is going to pass away over the course of the next 10 to 15 years for our productivity to grow as an economy. We need immigrants. And I believe a significant component of the immigrants that we need to bring in on top of being, you know, well-educated entrepreneurs, ability to contribute to society is going to be the international students that we already have and giving them a pathway, you know, to converting them from just students to permanent residents and then highly productive citizens, young citizens as well. Um, and so uh, that's kind of, you know, a big part of like, all right, this checks all of my boxes from a, you know, from those three components from an investment thesis standpoint, or from a partnership thesis standpoint, I'm in, um, obviously with some other due diligence. So that's kind of what I look for from a, you know, from the companies and the founders itself. And then the third piece is, then the, the piece for me is like, is where can I legitimately help? 
Um, and that's where, you know, I've learned to be very honest with myself around like, Hey, what is my actual core competency? Um, do you have a problem with your marketing and sales strategy that you really need someone to come in and take a critical look at, look at with a critical eye and either help you simplify things because you've built a Frankenstein and you maybe don't need a Frankenstein in terms of like how much complexity you're introducing in, or it's what are the fewest biggest steps that we need to take just to get started. Um, and so that's a lot of like what I, what I kind of look at as well. And then the other piece that I'm kind of working on is also how do you also uh, build operational, uh, how do you build an operational cadence, you know, between um, your, the various parts of your organization. So your customer follows everything, product and engineering follow the customer, marketing translates what product and engineering are building into sales collateral value propositions, sales sells it finance and decides along with the rest of the executive team, how to further invest into growth. How do you build that motion into your organization? And so that's a lot of what I'm working on with, uh, with other founders as well. Um, because a lot of what, what I can bring to the table is that I've worked at really small companies and I've worked at large and multinational behemoths. And I have, line of sight into like what maturity looks like at at different stages of growth mm -hmm. and how you as a leader can set up your business to make sure that hey when we're 3xing we're going to run into a bottleneck here and at least we can see this bottleneck and we know that we've got to address it either on the people process or technology side or we've already designed the ability to scale into this part of the system again not perfect but this is a lot of what i do my advisory work on with um with some of the organizations i work with that's amazing. I'm going to get my team to actually just clip that entire section. Um, not, not just for your benefit, but, but I think like with advisory and, and mentorship, by the way, just, you know, full disclosure, Vic is also a captain at launch. So if there are questions specific about any of the stuff we're talking about, he is on Slack. He he's around and I mean, obviously he's in Palm Springs right now, but, but like he's around and he's super supportive of our entire community. But, but like, I think really, because in 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 my role, I obviously get a lot of companies asking me for for connections to to mentors like yourselves and things like that. But I think a lot of times founders themselves don't think about you know the the person on the other side, right? Like, what are they interested in? They want to be helpful. So if they're able to help you in in a specific you know sector that that they feel confident that they're actually able to provide value, they're more than happy to have those conversations. But it, when it's not the right fit, those conversations end up being very short. So. So there is a lot of preparation work, I think, from from a founder's perspective that needs to go in before they even ask for that help. Yeah, and, I, and I'd actually like extend that even further in terms of just executive hiring or leadership hiring as well. It's the mistakes I've seen so many companies make is like, hey, I'll pick on myself. Hey, this person is from Facebook. You know, they know marketing. They'll be great in any marketing situation. Let's go drop them into an e-commerce company, right? And that's kind of the 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 superficial analysis that I off, off, often happens is like let's just look at the pedigree and the other titles the individuals held and let's go throw them in there. Whereas it takes a level of intellectual honesty to then be like, all right, here's the role that we need, but here's the actual problems in the next one to three years that we need this role to solve. Here's the shape of what we're actually going to ask this person to do. How well is that aligned to aid their competencies and what they want to do next? And that's how you really avoid, that's one of the things you can do to really avoid making like really bad hiring decisions that mm -hmm. especially when you're hiring leaders, like it takes years to unwind because you bring a leader in, 
you actually don't know if they're competent in their role or going to do what you need, frankly, until almost a year out. And at that time, they built teams, processes, et cetera. You then need to exit that person. And then you're trying to undo whatever it is that they've done and bring another leader in who's going to Frankenstein their own way of doing things on top of what that non-successful leader has done. And then you accrue all this bullshit debt you know, in your, in this intellectual debt in your company itself. So that's, you know, just the intellectual honesty around like, what is it that you actually need this leader to do? What have they done in the past? And do they actually want to do it again? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a bad hire can, can really sink or sink, sink a company, especially early on. Right. Totally. Um, totally. I, I do have another question here. Um, talking more about community marketing. Um, it says with regards to engaging in Reddit or discord, should you hold back about how much your pr- product solutions or key pain points slash like what you're preparing to release, especially if some features may be easy for existing solutions to maybe copy. So, so I think the general question is like, when is giving away too much before shipping dangerous? I'm a big believer in iterative shipping. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll go through an example of like how we, you know, how we did it at Facebook, even through the early years is we gathered the data. We built hypotheses based off of what we think would drive further adoption. And then we released it to 1% of the market, or potentially we would release it to a you know, specific geography. Um, based off of the traction that we saw or the signals that we got in terms of usage there, we would further iterate and then we would, in, in, then we would release it to 5% of the market. Again, do the same process again. And then from five, we'd go to 25, 25 to 50, and then 50 to 100. And so I'm a big believer in just that iterative approach as opposed to the, 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 the dropping the feature and seeing what happens because it then gives you the ability to A, keep things in beta perpetually forever, um, which buys some forgiveness. Um, but it also then allows you to get more of a running start. Uh, on what your competitors on what your competitors might do if they copy it, because hey, if they copy it, that's great. They release it to everyone, but then it's a you get thing, you get insights out that aren't necess- that aren't going to be um, poignant. You'll also be able to iterate on it a lot quicker because you'll have a bit more of a running start on that feature itself. Yeah, yeah. So hopefully that answers it. If if it doesn't, feel free to kind of iterate. I would I would also kind of add just that. I think early on what what grabs in a person's attention may be that you have like a unique solution but kind of what you know what Vic has talked about in the in the last hour is like that competitive advantage of like I have this one special feature that nobody else has I feel like that goes away really really fast really quickly right yeah. and so so your competitive advantage I think as as much as you can try and get ahead of that becomes the the community and stickiness and loyalty of your existing customers right like Yes, like a big, big tech brand can still do this, but I already built my, my whatever base on here. It's already part of my process. I don't necessarily want to move just because Facebook's doing the same thing. Right. Um, and I think more and more it's, it's that and not this kind of feature race. Um, but that's just kind of my point of view. Yeah, I, I totally agree, Sam, because at the end of the day, like all technology advantages get competed away over time. And so you've really, to your point, like you've really got to be looking forward around like, you know, what is it that I need to do to acquire the next cohort of customers or deepen my relationship with my existing customers? Awesome. And now we're, we're kind of wrapping up the hour, but I wanted to talk about Veritree a little bit because I think it's this really cool company that um, you're, you're now kind of fractionally on as, as, as COO, I believe. Um, tell us a little bit about that and how that, like how, how you actually kind of stepped in, I guess, first as an advisor and now you're kind of more active. Yeah. So, um, I've known Derek, um, for a while. So for context, um, 
uh, Derek and his t- uh, a team of co-founders, I believe there were five of them, founded this retail company called Tentree. And the thesis behind Tentree is that for every article of clothing purchase, they'll plant 10 trees. Um, it started in 2010. They built an incredible business um, off of it, highly profitable, highly successful. They're, Derek's an incredible operator. Um, but they ran into a really interesting problem, which was they went, they I believe they planted something like a hundred million trees in 10 years, which is incredible when you think about just the impact that's got from a legacy standpoint and, you know, long lasting uh, impact on the earth. Um, While they were, you know, running, while they were doing this, uh, this, this, these programs of uh, tree planting, what they realized was like, Hey, they went to visit their sites in Madagascar and Kenya, you know, and, and we're not, and they actually saw the process in place. We're like, okay, there's a pile of trees there. There's a pile of trees there. Which one are the trees that we've bought? How do we know that they're actually getting planted? How do we know that there's not actually double counting happening? And so they realized that, hey, this is a problem that we have as a business. And a lot of what our customers want is the ability to understand like what is the impact that they're actually making at a micro level with their purchases. So I bought you know, 10 articles of clothing um, from this brand. Therefore, I planted 100 trees. How are my trees doing? How much carbon are they sequestering? What's the biodiversity impact that they're having, right? And that becomes a really powerful engagement lever for your high LTV customers as well. So they realized that they had this problem around like, hey, double counting and whatnot. So they started developing what was effectively a tree ERP, a tree RP, um, to help actually track and verify where this planting was happening. So is the tree in the ground? Let's get the photos from the field, the metadata surrounding it. Uh, in some cases, let's put sensors on the trees themselves so that as the tree is expanding, this sensor will actually communicate like how much carbon is being sequestered, the survivability of it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's then pushed to a, verif- uh, you know, through three verification stages that are lined up to UN standards, they get signed off on, and then the actual impact is published, you know, to the cost, to the end customer. In this case, it was the Tentry customer. So they went and did this, they started, you know, they started building something that they felt would work for Tentry. And then they had an aha moment where it's like, wait a second, there's companies approaching Tentry all the time to ask if they can do tree planting with us. And they're like, what happens if we were to like, similar to what Amazon did with AWS is like, we built this technology to solve a problem for ourselves. There now appears to be further commercial interest in this technology. Now, what if we were to spin this out as its own completely separate entity and see if we can actually design a impact marketplace or a tree planting marketplace for brands that want to be, you know, uh, that want to be planting trees because A, it's the right thing to do in terms of environmental preservation. Their customers are demanding it. There's a younger cohort of customers that's coming up where environmental consciousness is actually, you know, amongst their top considerations when making purchasing decisions. Um, and so that's kind of where things are in terms of like uh, starting to establish like these tree marketplaces. So there's a supply team and they really focus on making sure that we can get trees in um, that are, or we're working with uh, planting partners who are willing to implement the technology because they see the value in it as a diverse as a point of differentiation from the other planting organizations that are out there and then you've got you know this you know multi-billion dollar tree planting market that's not even for carbon it's like for you know for marketing purposes uh and we're trying to figure out how much of that market can we capture in the next year or so to demonstrate that we actually have legitimate product market fit on the product itself on this platform itself Mm-hmm. And then, so, so how did you kind of get involved with, with that? Like, 
Yeah. So I was on, a, I was on this break and then uh, Derek was my client from my Facebook days. So I've known Derek mm-hmm. for about five, five or six years. Um, he saw that I was on a break. He reached out, um, kind of told me what he was doing, asked if I would come in and really help them work through like, what is our product strategy? What is our product mm-hmm. roadmap? What is our value proposition? You know, we have limited resources, which part of, you know, the various applications here should we invest in truly building out? Um, I was doing one day a week, I guess from like middle of May through to the end of August. Um, I really like the team, really like the founders, believe in what it is they're doing. Um, the unit economics on the business are, are unique in terms of I've, I've very rarely seen these kinds of unit, unit early stage unit economics. Um, and that's then translated to like what I'm doing now, which is since the start of October, like three days a week with the team, um, really frankly helping him establish that operating cadence that I was talking about. So can I help him build like the machine of his business? So all the gears are turning at relatively the same time. That's amazing. That's awesome. And, and I know you also um, teach entrepreneurship at UBC. So like, even though that's what I'm saying at the beginning of this episode, like even though Vic is on his break, he's got three days here, two days there, an extra another four days there. And somehow he's working nine days on his break. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I, I, it doesn't feel like work though, right? Because I'm, I'm actually following my true intellectual curiosity. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think for the first time in my professional career, and this, I think it's back to what we were talking about, just like a level of intellectual honesty around like, hey, what are you good at? What do you like to do? And where can you legitimately add value and therefore people will pay you for? Um, and so it, it, that's the other big thing is like, I genuinely, this is definitely the most energized I've been on like, awesome. the things I'm working on um, that I, it, ever in my life. For sure. And, and my very last question here is, you know, who are you interested in connecting more with and, and what's kind of the best way for them to reach out to you? Yeah, I'm, I'm always open for conversations with founders. I love talking about, you know, or understanding what it is they're building, their strategy, seeing if there's unique insights that I can bring, but more often than not, like it's, you know, helping my own pattern matching um, on that side. So I'm always interested in, um, you know, meeting with founders. I usually try to siphon off like one day a week to do like coffee meeting meetings downtown um, and do like a couple of, you know, back to back over the period of like two or three hours. Um, and to get a hold of me, you can either find me on LinkedIn um, or you can send me an email at Vic, B-I-K at diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A-B-C.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Vic. Really appreciate you. And we got to get you out for, for a launch offline soon in the new year. Looking forward to it. Yeah, looking yeah, forward to it. This is great. Gonna, we're going to have a lot of fun uh, in the coming year for sure. So thank you again very much. And thank you for everybody for listening live. If you are listening to the podcast for this um, at a later time and you want to join us live, you can get a Launchpad membership just at launchacademy.ca slash launchpad. Uh, we are out for now and, and have a great rest of your morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening to this. All right. Thanks. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Vic. Thanks, everyone. This episode was part of the Launch Academy Network of Podcasts. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already. While you're here, we hope you can check out the other Launch Academy podcasts, Bits and Bytes, and Founder Journey. If you're interested in joining these talks live and learning more about what Launch Academy does, go to launchacademy.ca. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Launch Academy HQ. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.